You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. It doesn't have to be embarrassing when there's no up in your get up and go. 40% of people with penises experience erectile dysfunction, one in four by the age of 40. So what are your options? Pills, pumps? No, 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 no. no. How about the Giddy wearable device? It's an FDA-registered Class 2 medical device that constricts in exactly the right places. Giddy also has a personalized online learning program developed by leading experts called the ED Educational Guide. I want you to get up and go get your own Giddy device and ED Educational Guide, so I'm passing along a 10% discount. Just use the code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, at get getmegiddy.com slash sunny. That's the code sunny at getmegiddy.com slash sunny. <laughs> American fuckers, welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging those puritanical backwards-ass ideals right here in the U.S. This is episode number 116 of American Sex Podcast, and I'm not Sonny Megatron. I'm actually Ken Melvoinberg. And I'm not Ken Melvoinberg. I'm actually Sonny Megatron. <sighs> We're sexuality advocators. Oh, my God. <laughs> we... <laughs> Stop laughing. We are sexuality educators. <laughs> We are sexuality edutainers, pleasure advocates, and kinky pervs. We're both tops also, and we're married. Uh, And, okay, I'm going to make a secret confession. I don't know about you, Ken, but I have tears, like, dripping down my face right now. Listeners, what you didn't hear is how many ever takes we did, and we were laughing our fucking asses off. So I think this is a good way to start this episode, is crying, but not in a sad way, in a, a joy That's the for normal life. way for us, is crying. <laughs> in a joy for life kind of way. Uh, and I'm also really excited because you know what? Queer superheroes! sci-fi poly kinky fantasy so i am i'm totally not only just laughing my ass off but i'm geeking out over this episode this week we're talking with kevin patterson and alana phelan authors of the sci-fi queer (laughs) ken's laughing at me still okay i'm just gonna keep rolling with it authors of the sci-fi queer poly superhero series for hire okay ken I want you to tell us about Kevin and Alana without laughing. Are we done with our giggle fest? I am not promising anything. (laughs) First of all, Kevin Patterson is a man of mystery. All right. I just want to put that out there. That's my title for him, no matter what. Uh, And Kevin Patterson is also an active member of the Philadelphia polyamory community. He's been practicing ethical non-monogamy since 2002 after opening up a relationship that eventually became his marriage. Kevin is the creator of Poly Role Models, an interview series featuring polyamorous people. It is currently the most diverse and inclusive platform for polyamory available. Kevin is the author of the book, Loves Not Colorblind, Race and Representation and Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. If you haven't read this, guys, you really need to. This is a really amazing book. And along with co-writer Alana Phelan, Kevin launched a sci-fi novel series 
for hire. The series centers characters of color as well as other marginalized identities. Alana Phelan is a writer, editor, and librarian. After dipping in and out of non-monogamy over the last 20-plus years, she decided to commit to polyamory about six years ago. She then helped organize meetups in Philadelphia, New Jersey, and Connecticut and started the Polyamory Hub of Philadelphia. She now houses and helps run a small lending library for the Philadelphia polyamory community and uses her experiences, both good and bad, to help others as the polyamorous librarian. I'm impressed with you, Ken, that I think your giggle fit is over. I'm over here still crying, but I'll try to make it here. I'll try to make it. Giggle fit's my new band name, by the way. Giggle what? Giggle Giggle fit. I like that. Giggle fit. All right. So really, though, I seriously geeked out over this conversation. You know, first of all, all I have to say is queer superhero universe. Like that really does say it all. We not only talked about that in this conversation, but we also discussed why centering marginalized voices is important in fiction, how Harry Potter fans are handling the J.K. Rowling turf situation, why books like Fifty Shades of Grey and Anne Rice's beauty series positively changed our culture while still perpetuating harmful stereotypes, and how positive representation in media can change the world. They also tell us about being awarded an Effing Foundation grant and about their upcoming nonfiction book about cautionary polyamory. So we recently got a letter sent to us that I really wanted to share, and we had the author's permission to share this letter. I want to send a thank you to both of you. I am in an open relationship with my husband, and one of my partners was tested positive for chlamydia, and he contacted me offering advice for locations and time for screening. Thanks to the wonderful American Sex Podcast and the work you guys have done for the adult sexual community, I didn't freak out. This is my first STI scare and or possible infection. I got off the phone with this partner that told me and very calmly looked up the number for Planned Parenthood and made an appointment. They've been fast and efficient with a level of quality I only wish a normal hospital would have. I also got tested for HIV because, you know what, I'm an adult and you need to know your status. So again, in closing, I just wanted to thank you two amazing kinky fuckers helping the rest of us be safe and knowledgeable. You are wonderful and the world is a much better place with people like you in it. He signs off the letter with, You don't have to keep it anonymous because I am into fighting of the shame culture with SDIs. Signed, our good friend Maurice. Now, Maurice, I think this was very, very brave of you to share this. And I think that uh, anything that we can do to normalize STIs and make it so they're not scary and stigmatized and people are just uh, unable to, like, share their information because of shame. It's something that we absolutely need to do across the board. And, uh, you know, everybody out there, just keep remembering, like using words like clean are detrimental to anybody. Like it's nobody ever means to get an SDI. It's always accidental. And it's very interesting. If somebody gets cancer, they don't have an issue saying, oh, I'm sorry. Let me start a GoFundMe for you. Let's see what we can do about that. Let me buy you wigs. But if it's something like HPV, there's a little stigma attached to it. And so we're doing what we can to help release that stigma and make people feel comfortable so that they feel better about getting healthy and sharing the informations with others. And I think it's also an important display of of how conversations like we have here or on other sex podcasts or other conversations on other mediums that other sexuality educators have, just having these 
random conversations about any topic having to do with sex actually makes an impact on people's lives and enables them to feel okay having these conversations with people in their own lives about things they may have generally felt uncomfortable with or unsure of or wanted to hide. So thank you, Maurice. Thank you, Maurice. You're awesome, by the way. We love you, Maurice. We do. We do. So real quick, before we get to Kevin and Alana, we want to remind you about our Sex Ed live stream series on Wednesday nights. This upcoming Wednesday is all about sex toys. But the cool thing is, if you don't catch us live, you can always catch our shows on replay by going to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Sunny Get Vocal. And that's spelled V-O-K-L. But actually, the not cool thing is, if you want to win one of the four premium sex toys we give away during each of our live streams, each one is worth up to $200, by the way. And hand curated by Sonny and myself. Oh, yes, absolutely. You have to be present on the Get Vocal platform during the live stream to win. So go to that same link, bit.ly slash Vocal to get all signed up and subscribe to American Sex Live. That way you'll get a notification when we go live. We'll see you on Wednesday night, January 29th for our All About Sex Toys live stream. Okay, American fuckers. First of all, I'm really proud to say we made it through this intro without giggling. Although I'm going to have to go back and edit a bunch of shit because we did still giggle. Uh, (laughs) But I want you to stop laughing. Put on your cape and your superhero cat suit that hugs you in all the right places. Dun, dun, dun. Here is Kevin Patterson and Alana Phelan. All right, American fuckers, it is not only super excited time, it is super hero time. We are talking to Kevin Patterson and Alana Phelan, and Ken is laughing at me. Don't laugh at me. Um, the authors of the Four Hire series. Hi. Hey, guys. Hello. So we're super geeked out um, because you're super geeks. And not only are you super geeks, but you uh, you have written, created a universe that involves polyamorous superheroes. So I think that's where we're going to start, to get our American fuckers up to speed on the Four Hire series. Can you kind of set it up for us? Like, you know, tell us the premise, the characters, what's this whole Four Hire universe about? Um, I guess I can jump in early. Um, so I was writing. Uh, I was writing my other book, uh, "Love's Not Colorblind: uh, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities." And like, I was like halfway in, and I just sort of needed like a mental break. And I had just watched the San Junipero episode of um, Black Mirror, so I just like had an idea of a couple of young women meeting and bonding over technology. And I just started writing and writing and writing and it coincide, it coincided with like NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month. And out of nowhere, I ended up writing like 50,000 words of a story I didn't think anybody would ever read, which ended, which ends up being longer than Love's Not Colorblind was. <gasps> and, uh, just like it took maybe a month and a half to write this, this, um, this, this whole draft. And I gave it to Elena and she was like, this is terrible. And 
was, I was all like, I was rooting for like, oh, the people that do that November writing thing, actually really good books come of it. So you've corrected my assumptions, yeah. <laughs> but keep going, keep going. Yeah. I mean, cause like writing, writing nonfiction for me is easy. I'm just talking about myself and adding analogies that I think wouldn't uh, transmit the message. Whereas writing fiction, you actually have to like, create a narrative and characters and situations and alana is better at that stuff with than i am uh-huh. so like at some point after love's not colorblind actually released we took another look at it and we decided to go in together to like take what i wrote and make it something readable make it something um make it something cohesive um, okay the analogy i've been using is that like uh, back in the day, I used to rhyme with my homeboys. Like this, back in college, we used to like get together in dorm rooms, put on some instrumentals, and write and write uh, hip hop. Now, my friends could freestyle for hours. Like you can give them any topic, and they can just go off the top of their head for hours and hours and hours, and it'll all be fire. But if you said, "Hey, I need you to write a song, a sixteen-bar verse, and a chorus." They wouldn't know how to do that. And my job was to sort of rein in their hundred bars of freestyles and turn it into like an actual listenable song. And Alana does that for me in terms of uh, writing fiction. Oh, cool. All right. Oh, that's awesome. All right. So you you got this book together and it has now been massaged into what we see today. A lot of editing. So what is the... The premise. Who are we getting familiar with in this book? So for hire uh, is its own little world. It's it's not our own. The appearance of superheroes basically changed the timeline. So the world should be like ours, except that superheroes uh, came to be and or were noticed by the public. And then they started using their power to create voices for um, themselves and people who are like them. For example, uh, there's a hero, we've mentioned him in the book, but he exists before our stories start. And he decided that he was only willing to use his powers for the local law enforcement if they were willing to work on um, the problem of having, you know, dirty cops and racism within their precinct. So there's a, a form of, of power in this that most marginalized people don't get to have, and it's used to meet people um, on a level and raise everyone up. So that's, that's the thing that uh, – one of the things that absolutely drew me to Kev's original draft – was this idea that he already had this world and it's maybe in terms of uh, where everyone is, maybe like 20, 30 years ahead tops because these voices were being raised up so high, so loud um, before our own. For example, um, one of the things that we talk about in our second book is we talk about it very briefly because it sort of uh, just sets the scene that this world is about 10, 15, 20 years ahead in terms of trans rights. Because there okay. was a trans superhero who stayed. Alana, in can the I stop of- you right there? Because sure. I wanted to read a quote from For Hire Audition. And I think this is the thing that you're about to 
set up. Okay. So can I go ahead and read it? It's like, and the reason that I wanted to use this particular quote is that it was the first thing that I read by you guys, and it was literally on the first page, and it had such an impact about what this whole adventure was going to be like. So this is just a portion from For Hire Audition uh, from one of the beginning uh, sections. You had Franklin Curry in the summer of 1968. He made social justice and superhero work a joint crusade. A year later, you had the Stonewall riots that really kicked off the LGBT movement. The point where those two things were really crossed paths in a major way, specifically for trans people, was in 1976 with Morris Maldonado, the hero called El Peligro. When he was misgendered and called his old hero name by a politician giving him an award for heroism, he took decisive action with one punch. It launched a nationwide conversation about how we treat and respect transgender folks. It was just a single punch, but it changed laws, introduced protections, and revolutionized both language use and medical access. Yes. So I'm just going to leave it off right there. Now, was that what you were about to talk about? That is exactly I what I was going to talk okay. about. This is the kind of thought that Kevin puts into the world that drew me in, that made me want to work with him and to continue writing. Because um, what I was supposed to do was Kev was like, hey, can you just look at this draft? And, you know, he was like hoping that I'd like jump in and like change a few commas or something. And I was like, Hey, Kev, where's your inciting incident? And he's like, I write nonfiction. What's an inciting incident? And it all started from there. But like, it was my, my love of, especially the main character in the first book operator, um, Sana. I loved Sana. She is so closed off. Um, and she's, there there's you know she's definitely you either you either really get like right there with her and you get to be cranky with her and you get to stomp around with her and you get to feel betrayed like she does and you you get to feel love like she does or else you're just like wow what a jerk and then you're just kind of like <laughs> never mind um but you know i we've definitely had more readers say oh yeah i i, I was you know team sauna for the whole thing and it's it, you know, it's just, it's so great because the the other thing is that, like, these ripple effects from these early heroes are being seen through the books because we're not just following um, one or two or a team of characters. The first book follows um, Sana and her partner, Double M, and then the second book is two completely different characters. And there's a little tiny bit of crossover, but it's not even, like, plot crossover. It's just oh, this person works in the same place as Double M does. So you're going to see Double M from mm-hmm. a completely different perspective. And so like, and then the next book is going to go, um, actually, it's it's going to be the, fir- the first half of Kev's draft. Because <laughs> it turned out his inciting incident, his starting point for the story was like chapter 11 or whatever. And yeah. I was like, I was like, you wrote a bunch of like, backstory kind of accidentally so let's like focus on the second half so so we're gonna go back to the first half we're gonna flesh that out and get that out next year but um the fourth book is gonna be like oh you're gonna get everybody's perspective because we're doing um vignettes short stories uh possibly a comic strip um and uh photo shoot like we're, we're trying to go for like a little bit of everything in the fourth book yeah, yeah, mm. we're yeah we're we're overdoing it for the for, for the fourth book, but it's uh 
it's been an, it's been a good ride, and like I really like what we're doing with this universe because like something that always gets ha- something that happens a lot in sci-fi and fantasy, which Elena and I take a lot of in. They always sort of speculate that you're in this world without racism, this world without oppression, and you know, and uh, like systemic oppression, but they never actually tell you how you got there, and you ah. and they never tell you and like. And even if it's this world without, like, say, racism or homophobia or transphobia, why is the main character always a cishet white guy? So we decided to just turn that on its head uh, for for both books, where like the main character in Audition is a young trans woman you know, trying to get by. But it's not a book about, like, trans girl pain. It's not a book about, like, her fight with transphobia. It's not a coming out narrative. She's just trying to figure out her life and... Her being a trans woman informs some of the moves that she makes and, and like some of the, the, the world as she sees it or the, uh, as her as the world sees her. But it's mm-hmm. not about her being a trans woman. It's just that she's a trans woman and like these are, this is what she's going through. Right, right. It's, it's, uh, you know, part of her character development that she happens to be a trans woman, but it's not like, you know, here's trans superhero and, and that's what everything's about. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, yeah. The, the, the thing that Ken read earlier, that's, um, that's in the 1970s. Our character takes place in, in like, this is 2018. This, uh, this book is taking place. So like, this is 40 years after the fact. So she's not dealing with, she's not dealing with transphobia the way it looks like to us right now. She's dealing with transphobia after it being sort of lessened and lessened and lessened over the course of the, of the previous four decades. Mm. okay like yeah the, like the same way you've got queer folks who aren't completely boned up on what happened with the stonewall riots that's our main character on, in audition she's aware of of the the moore's maldonado story that uh that ken read but like it's not something that she spends a whole lot of time thinking about it's ancient history to her right that makes right sense. and you know what this dovetails into something from current events that i wanted to ask you guys about so motherfucking J.K. Rowling. Let's talk yeah. about that for just a second because there's a huge intersection between her recent Twitter diarrhea and kind of what you guys are all about in your books. Um, for those of you who are unaware, J.K. Rowling uh, just came out in support of a TERF, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist who um, – she didn't lose her job from what I understand. She – her contract was not renewed in – Rolling came out to her defense to bash trans people. I just wanted to get your both of your thoughts on that. It's not surprising. Um, J.K. Rowling has been like low key transphobic for a while, and this is sort of like the nail in, the nail in the transphobic coffin. Um, I know that like it's not my place to tell somebody to separate the the art from the artist, but I see a lot of people who are currently doing that. And if that's how they feel like they need to process their pain, cool. If they feel they need to cancel JK Rowling and the Harry Potter books and like throw it all in a fire. Cool. All I know is that I'm, I'm personally done giving her any money. Yeah. Yeah. Same with me. Alana, what do you think about the situation? Uh, I just read this really great article today. I wish I, you know, you 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 start down a rabbit hole, and then you're reading like 15 articles about the same thing. You don't know what comes from what. But it was about her second book under her pen name. Uh, the, the oh yeah, when series. she yeah yeah David, I, I can't remember what it was. It was a, it was a masculine sounding name. Robert 
Jill Braith or something. Gil Braith. Yeah, or something. yeah. Um, my book club tried to read the first one, and I understand that her point was to like try to quote write like a man unquote. Um, but it was awful. <laughs> like it was just it was terrible. And then there was uh, I was really uncomfortable with the way that she was writing um, about the mixed race characters in that story. And apparently in the second book, or I think it's the second book, um, there is a trans character who is treated terribly. And so for anyone who has read those works, they kind of were like, okay, you know what? Despite what she says on Twitter, this is already terrible. Like we already know it's terrible. People have, have said it's terrible and we should be paying more attention to that. Um, the thing is, is like, you can't write, they say you can't write what you don't know. And it's completely untrue, right? Because she, she made a, a multi probably billion dollar empire based on writing about magic. Um, which I assume she doesn't know or else she would have magicked her way out of this scenario. <laughs> um, but the, the, the thing that the thing that we do, right? The thing that that we do is we recognize that um, we can't be everyone, right? We 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 can't have every identity, uh, and we can't assume that we know every identity. And so when we write. We talk to people, and if we are talking to them enough, we, you know, if we're if we're using their labor, we're paying them, right? I might yeah. like throw a question at my for the for the first book. I like threw a question at my like a uh, non-binary kid, and I was like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And we had a good co little conversation about it. But for the second book, when you have two cis people writing a trans character, um, you can't just assume that you're getting it right. So we had two consultants on the book um, that we paid to uh, look over as we were writing and uh, make suggestions, and we made changes based on those suggestions. And this is not a hard thing to do. Um, I'm going to assume that that book that she wrote did not go through any trans person's hands. And then you have to think about how many people's hands did that book go through despite her treating that trans character in her book poorly. How many hands do her, did her books go through, you know, or how many, you know, how many hands do all books go through? And then you see this, this blatant like racism, or you see this subtle racism or like you, I, I do a lot of reading, right? I am, I am a librarian. I do a lot of reading. And sometimes I just, I just sit there and I'm like, who, who was on this team? What is the demographic of this team and why isn't it a different demographic? Like how how did this book make it to print without someone catching this thing? And sometimes it's something small, right? I was um reading through a book, uh I was doing the the Rainbow Book List uh selection committee a couple years ago, which is an American Library Association committee where you read a whole bunch of books and then you um put together a bibliography and then people can find books on that topic, which in this case is LGBT books from birth to about teen. And there is a moment in a book where uh, an author had a black character swim in a lake. And I'm like, should her hair be covered? And so I, I, you know, I turned to one of my best friends and I said, shouldn't her hair be covered? And she's like, yeah, that, that would have made me feel away. Mm. And so you have to think like, so 
I, not everyone's going to feel that way, right? Like, so I talked right. to a couple other people and they were like, yeah, that, that doesn't bother me at all. I totally understand. Maybe her hair is like this. Maybe her hair is like that. But the author makes, made it such a point for her to like stand in front of the mirror beforehand because she's like psyching herself up because they're going to go jump in the lake at like, you know, but o'clock in the morning. And, mm-hmm. and so, you, you know, it's, I'm not like slamming the author. I actually tweeted the author and the author was like, oh, yeah, that's something that never would have occurred to me. And now I know that this is something to look out for in the future. And it's like, cool, that's that's all anybody needs to do, right? right? But if you have a team in place that is just looking out for not you, but themselves, if they're looking for themselves in the writing, if they're looking out for um, people who are like them, readers who are like them, who want to see things like, authenticity or at least not injury then you you don't necessarily have to worry about that like obviously our consultants aren't going to agree on every single thing right because they're different people no group that we ever talk about or write about is a monolith but um just having that team in place and so this just tells me that uh jk rowling doesn't know any trans people or jews apparently because otherwise those goblins wouldn't have looked like they did and just saying as a Jewish American, that's one of the things I'm like, you know, this looks just like a 1930s drawing of a Jew banker. Like that's what this is. And nobody said stop. No one said stop. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there is, you know, a a pretty big crossover between geek culture and alternative sexuality. So a lot of people, especially our listeners listening, they understand why representation is important and and that we're not really seeing it and we're not seeing it authentically and well thought out as you're describing. However, um, there are a lot of other people in the the geek community that really enjoy, you know, sci-fi and superhero tales that are like, God damn it, you know, every character on TV now has got to be gay and they got to be, they, they have certain pronouns. Why, 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 why? So if you're talking to somebody like that, you know, why is this kind of representation important? You know, aren't we, quote, seeing it enough in popular media? I always find that I always find that argument kind of like uh interesting um just because again like a lot of these world a lot of these worlds a lot of sci-fi a lot of fantasy like speculates that we're in this place without any sort of oppression and the people who are watching don't question that either um I mean what the people who are being represented by the the cishet white male protagonist they don't ask that question like why is it always a cishet white male and I feel like they're missing the point of the show but also the people who, uh, the but so are, um some of the creators of that show like even if we're talking about JK Rowling like JK Rowling is transphobic as fuck but like nothing in Harry Potter says that she should be so She's missing the point of the story that she created. And also, there are a lot of people who who read those books and love, you know, like, they'll get up in arms about purebloods versus muggleborns, but will still be, like, hardcore transphobic. Like, why do you feel like you've earned a world without without, uh, systemic oppression? Mm. Well, I actually think part of the reason for that is because we're taught... Um, you know, white middle class people are taught and and actually not even just white middle class people. Textbooks are taught to um, show a 
progressive, winning narrative of our history in this country, right? We overcame slavery. We, we, we succeeded in the civil rights movement. Um, I really think, so I'm, I'm 42 now. So I was around in the 90s. I was a teenager. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of like colorblindness, right? There was mm-hmm. a lot of, we're all the same. We're all exactly the same. We're exactly, exactly, exactly the same. And one of the things I um, usually talk about when I, when I talk about stuff like this is I talk about the Cosby show. How did the ratings do in the Cosby show when um, the, the show started talking about African roots and slavery and, you know, a different world went from a show that had Marissa Tomei to a show yeah. that was about you know, about racism. How did it, you know, how did, how did white people respond to that? Most of them dropped out of watching it. They Mm -hmm. wanted to feel safe. They wanted to look at, you know, uh, Cliff Huxtable and they wanted to see a black doctor, just like a white doctor on TV. Look, his, his wife is a lawyer. Look how successful they are. Anyone in America can be that successful. It's just a matter of, you know, working hard enough and trying hard enough and ignoring the fact um, of systemic oppression and ignoring things like redlining and ignoring things like how people get treated at work or, you know, when you have uh, applications for jobs and people are being passed over based on what their name sort of maybe sounds like or looks like. It, it's, it's a fantasy and we were sold a fantasy and we have the privilege to tap out of that fantasy or to tap out of the reality and embrace the fantasy. And I just feel like so many people do that. And it's just not helpful. It's not helpful at all. As someone who lived in a very tiny rural um, town in the New Jersey Pine Barrens, right? Um, it's easy to find that you suddenly like have lost any sense of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, I think my kid's school had one biracial kid and that was it. Wow. Um, right. But, but like, that's just one town. There right. are many, many towns all over like this that are so insulated that these issues are, are a fantasy to them. Right. They, they don't see it. They can't comprehend it. They don't have anyone to talk to about it. And it becomes problematic when there are people around them saying, but no, you have seen the world wrong this whole time. Or you have seen the world, you know, with blinders on, or you've seen the world uh, through rose-colored glasses. This is not how it is for everyone. And for some people, it's just so hard to get over that hurdle. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. The thing that actually got me over that hurdle uh, was counting the number of white men in every TV and movie that I watched. And then later on when I became a producer, because I was just blown away by just the sheer, like, I never noticed it as a kid. I hate to say that, but I was just oblivious that everybody was a white man. I just accepted that as a norm. Um, And so when I started counting, I'm like, oh, my God, this is proportionately wrong. And then when I became a producer, one of the things that I still do to this day that I think is incredibly important for white producers to do is like um, do a run-through of the script, but eliminate all of the white male voices and see if you still have a story. 
because that's sort of a good litmus test just to see whether or not. And if it's like, if you don't have a story, that means you've cast all white men and you know, it just, you got to do better. Um, Dylan, Dylan Marin, uh, who's a, like a blogger and uh, a blogger and like content creator had this thing called, um, every single word spoken by a person of color. Oh yeah. And it, was like a, yeah it was like a Tumblr blog and like a YouTube channel. And it would just like, he would just like narrow down movies, like, uh, trim them down to every word spoken by a person of color. Oh, and, man, that's awesome. And oh, for no. some of it, it would be like, you know, one minute's worth of dialogue in a two, in a two hour movie. Or like, <gasps> I remember, um, like he did, he did it with all of the Harry Potter movies. And I don't remember exactly how it was with all of them, <laughs> but like a couple of, like, I think it was like at least one of them had no spoken lines by a person of color. Um, or like there was uh, the one the one nameless character in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban where like he says something like catching serious black is like catching smoke with your bare hands and that was like the only spoken line by a person oh, of color. No. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, Dylan wow. Marin is awesome, but also Kevin is the one who taught me how to pay attention to the demographics in the room because he talks about it. Um, in his workshops, and he talks about it in his book, and how he would look around and see, you know, who there was black, who there was a person of color. And I started to count because of going to his workshop, and then reading his book, I started to count. And I started to count on my own Facebook, right? I, I looked at my Facebook and said, who who are the people in my life? And how have I, you know, how has that changed over time you know like i said I, I i lived in the woods for a couple of years i was like oh i barely met anyone and the people that i did meet were white and it's like okay that's great but i'm back in the suburbs and i could be talking to anybody so honestly after kevin started talking about that stuff i was like um hey do you want to go see that horrible fantastic four movie okay we didn't know it was going to be horrible but it turned out to be the thing that like solidified our friendship that we went to go see this <laughs> awful movie together with our friends um yeah, just just being in this place where you're where you turn around and you realize that like you know, you go from from being I was I was raised in a in a suburban South Jersey town and then moving to a rural area, being out there for a couple of years and then coming back and I'm like I could I could be friends with anyone. I should be paying attention to the people that I'm I'm being friends with. Like if if I'm still making all white friends, that is on me. That is a choice I'm making. Right. And like the thing about counting in in spaces, a lot of that is just a safety measure, because like a lot of times, um, like being a black person in in polyamorous spaces, a lot of times people would feel like fetishizing me is okay, or that like the only thing that I've got going for me, the only reason I'm there, the only value I bring to a space is that I'm the black guy. Like you know, like the ability to fetishize me is the benefit of me being in a space. You know, um, and that's like spaces that where people don't know me. Like eventually, people get to know me, and I can just be a full fledged person. But I'm not given that benefit to start. So walking into a space and being able to sort of count, um really quickly how many people of color are there a lot of that is like a safety measure and it's the same way with um with with the media that we consume where i i posted up in uh on facebook recently just celebrating the new book celebrating for higher audition because uh elena and i just had a release party at the famous amalgam comics and coffee shop here in philadelphia oh that's awesome yeah yeah it's it was it was really good last year and this year for both books 
But um, I posted up about that, and somebody asked, like, why does it matter that you're making a queer, polyamorous uh, uh, superhero story centering people of color? Like, why are, th- why are you putting these identities on Front Street? And I'm like, because you're not always going to get that. And it's really – if I decided I wanted to read all of the quote-unquote greats, I could do that without touching a single book by by a woman, without doing reading a single book by a person of color, without write, uh, reading a single book by someone who wasn't heterosexual and cisgender. Like, if I wanted to read the greats, I could fill a library of just cishet white dudes and have people think, wow, that's a really great and amazing library, as if everybody else doesn't exist or as if everybody else doesn't need to exist. So, like, we put the identities out there because... These stories, these stories can be universal. These stories can be told from different perspectives. Um, like even if you take like Superman, everybody knows Superman. And if you look at the book Icon, um, which was um, a Dwayne McDuffie project from um, Milestone Comics, Icon was essentially Superman, but told from told as a black man who grew up in like the Deep South versus. Um, a white man growing up in the American Midwest and you're going to get two different characters from those different perspectives. So just being able to like go out and find uh created work by people who aren't of like the most rep- uh, who aren't like the max representation that's it changes your perspective on the world. Like uh the same way uh, you were saying like how many people are like how many people are people of color in a space, how many people of color were on a written page. Like, look at your library, look at your podcast, look at your television shows. How many people of color are in the creative teams for that? You know, how many NK Jemison books do you have versus, you know, um, uh, HP Lovecraft? Like how many, uh, Octavia Butler books are, are you holding on to? Like it changes your perspective when you're taking in media from different sources. Yeah, yeah. It is. And I wanted to add something really important to this because uh, I got a, a, and I don't know if I shared this with you, Sonny. I got an email saying that, Ken, why do you, ha- if you're a white man, why do you hate white men? I don't hate white men. Not at all. I like being a white man. What I don't like is the, you know what, we've had a good thousand year run. It's time to pass the mic. It's as simple as that. Other folks need representation. We've had plenty. And it's not that anybody is hating on white men, but we should love everybody for who they are, you know what I mean? And give everybody a chance for representation because we've had enough. So it's not about hate us. It's about pro everyone who's not getting represented. Does that make sense? And what do you guys think about that? When somebody says, do you hate white people? Yeah. Like some of my, it's, it's cool. Some of my favorite, some of my best friends are white. <laughs> <laughs> I have white <Snap>. friends. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but yeah, it, it's, it's like you said, like, it's it, it shouldn't be a combo breaker at this point in American history to have had like a black pre- it, basically a non cis hat white dude president like you know the the fact that it took this that long to have a a, a non cis hat white dude president is like it's embarrassing to the point where you look at American history and realize how long it took to put uh, wheels on suitcases or to put ketchup in squeezable bottles like it's embarrassing that it took that long <laughs> for these really simple innovations like a non cishet white dude president yeah. and add the word christian under that too please yes also <laughs> yeah yeah so have you seen specific instances with your readers of both of your books that where you have 
seen yourselves directly affecting social change? Like if readers come to you and told you things that kind of warmed your heart and said like, I did this for the right reasons. Good. <laughs> um, so our book release party last year for Operator, um, we had someone who who came up to us and said, I needed to put the book down. I had to put it down because I had never seen myself on the page before. I never saw the way that I loved on the page before. And I was overwhelmed. I had to put the book down. And then I had to pick it back up and finish it because it was so good. But, you know, like, honestly, like, she could have told us, you know, oh, the book was amazing. I couldn't put it down. And it would not have affected me half as much as her saying, I've never seen myself on the page. I've never seen people who have relationships the way that I do on the page. That was that was amazing. Um, for me, it was, um, for me, all right, so there's an operator, there is a scene that happens at a kink, uh, like a kink club, a sex party, you know? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't think a whole lot about it. Like, I wrote it, and I enjoyed writing it, and I re- I'm, I'm really proud of the chapter, but no more or less than anything else that I wrote in that book. And um, somebody said to me, that they were really happy with the way it was written because consent was such a focus in there. And I'm like, but it's a swing club. It's a kink place. Consent should be a focus. Like I couldn't write it without that. And like, I could, I mean, obviously I could, but when I read it and reread it and reread it, I was like, Oh wait, I got to make sure that, you know, this character is visibly asking for permission, not just accepted that she has permission, but that she's, you know, that she's, actively has permission to be in the space that she's uh, in and can engage the way that she's looking to engage. And, you know, um, basic stuff like somebody you know asking a question, somebody declining, and the person who asked saying, thank you for taking care of yourself. You know, just basic stuff like that. It didn't feel like I was going overboard. Like, this is just my reality. Like, I end up in kink spaces and in, in, uh, in sexy spaces from time to time, and people are trying to be really consent-focused while there. So, the but what i'm what i'm losing there is that a lot of people miss that like it's something that's embarrassingly easy to get right but people get it wrong all the goddamn time valentine's day is just around the corner so it's only fitting that this important interruption is brought to you by manscaped manscaped offers precision engineered tools for you or your sweetheart's family jewels So have you thought about what you're getting your loved one this year? How about a gift that's going to pleasure you both? I'm talking about the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0. It's the perfect package for, well, a perfect package. Now I'm going to be straight with you. On Valentine's Day, someone's getting a blowjob and someone else is going to get at least one unkempt stray hair stuck in their throat. Your romantic evening is going to be interrupted by the sound of a cat vomiting. But no, that's not a cat vomiting. It's actually you choking down a pew. Hold on. One second. I got a hair. Okay, I almost got it. Nope. This situation is why this revolutionary company, Manscaped, has redesigned the electric trimmer and called it the Lawnmower 3.0. The Lawnmower 3.0 has proprietary advanced skin safe technology, so it won't nick your nuts. The Lawnmower 3.0 comes inside their perfect package. 
Package 3.0, which makes the perfect gift for Valentine's Day or really any time of year. It contains everything you need to keep things nice down there. So give the gift that will make your Valentine's Day one to remember. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com with the code SUNNY. Happy Valentine's Day. Now go pamper those balls. The beginning of a new year is an opportunity to create new habits to be your happiest, healthiest self. And if you want to sleep better and feel less stressed, then you need Calm. It's the easiest way to improve your mental and physical health, plus start your 2020 off right. Calm is the number one app for sleep, relaxation, and meditation. I'm telling you, it's great. Both Ken and I use it, and we couldn't be more thankful for the calm it's brought to our lives. Calm has sleep stories, which are like bedtime stories, but for adults. They can help you fall into a deep, natural sleep in minutes. And the stories are narrated by iconic voices like LeVar Burton. They also have soothing music from artists like Sam Smith, guided meditations, breathing exercises, and so much more to keep you relaxed and de-stress. And if you go to calm.com slash sunny, you'll get a limited time offer for 40% off a Calm premium subscription. That includes hundreds of hours of programming. So again, for listeners of American Sex Podcast, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. Just go to calm.com, that's C-A-L-M.com slash sunny. 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library, and new content is added every single week. Get started today at calm.com slash sunny, S-U-N-N-Y. That's calm.com slash sunny. Well, there was just a, a thing that said that Fifty Shades of Grey was like the best-selling book of the decade or something like that, and... Uh, you know, people have been talking about it. Oh, God, this book was like the, the you know, the, the best selling book, and it was so terrible. And the representation for kink people was terrible. And, you know, y- yes, I mean, I read I read all three books, you know, it was when I was starting my career as a librarian was when they came out. And I, I felt obligated to read them because my, my patrons were reading them. A- and I just, uh, but I guess the flip side of that is that sometimes, um, these books that are not that are blatantly not written by people who are who identify or or do the things that are in them or anything like that um, create a little bit of change in the world because I remember after the books came out that there was a huge push at um at sex stores to do educational classes on you know BDSM 101 and so all the people who may have otherwise just sort of guessed their way around it and ended up actually hurting themselves because there there are absolutely things in that book that are dangerous um were taking a class that discussed those things you know and and in a way that did not make people feel bad about finding that book you know intriguing or interesting or 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 sexy yeah, I actually had a public library have me come in to do a Fifty Shades book club and explain to everyone like, okay, this is the fantasy, this is the not, okay, let's do a BDSM 101 in a public library. I was like, yes. 
Yes. So, yeah, it created those conversations that would have never happened otherwise. Did any of the people get mad at you? No. It was was (laughs) interesting. No. I had people from their 20s to, like, in their 70s, and they were all like, this was so enlightening. Thank you so much. Spanky, spanky. Giggle, giggle. I was like, (laughs) what is happening? Why? Did you have people getting mad? So, (laughs) so here I am reading this book that I just do not enjoy. I read all three of them, and... And the best part of them were reading parts out loud. I am so loud. sorry. Look, you know what? The The best part was reading it out loud with my partner at the time and just sort of like laughing at, at like a little, you know, the cheesiness and all that other stuff. Right. Um, and I'm not here to, you know, yuck anyone's yum. It's it's as long as they're not taking some of the dangerous stuff into real life, enjoy what you enjoy. Um, but so I'm behind the circulation desk and this patron comes in who's uh, um, about – 20 years older than me and has is returning the book and i'm trying to you know be my most professional self and not talk about the content of the book however because it went from like fan fiction online to a book Mm -hmm. as fast as it could as it was blowing up um a lot of the typos were still in the book and so i'm sitting here thinking okay cool i can i can just I can still criticize the book. I just won't criticize, you know, the the content of it. Um, and so I was like, "Oh, didn't you didn't you think there were a lot of typos? I mean, I, the typos were driving me mad." And she got so upset with me. Really? She yes. So she uh, refused to check out her stuff at the circulation desk. She would only use the the self checkout, and if I was at the desk, she only used the self checkout for the next couple of weeks too. But as she was leaving. She literally stopped in the doorway, turned around, looked at me, and said in a really loud voice, who cares about stupid typos anyway, and flounced out like Scarlett O'Hara, leaving like all the people in the library staring, because it's little tiny, little tiny library staring at the door. Everybody heard her. And then they all look at me, and I'm just like, I, I really don't like when there's typos. I, I really like <laughs> I like a well-edited book. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, you know what I found? I found that the people that read Fifty Shades of Grey were the last people you would ever think would get – and the last people they ever thought themselves would get into something like that. And it turned on something – you know, it it lit a spark inside of them. And it's, you know, such a taboo thing. I think there's still that knee-jerk reaction. So it's like – And I was very careful when I was teaching about Fifty Shades to like never even come close to even seeming like I'm knocking anything about the book because people did get defensive. And and you're absolutely right. And I think because it's like they were taking it as like, you're not criticizing the typos, you're criticizing like, I finally acknowledge something within myself that I've been denying all these years. And suddenly like to them, someone's knocking it. And it was, I think, just their knee-jerk reaction of like, hey, because yeah. they yeah. they couldn't really defend like, I, I'm i defending kink. Maybe they couldn't say that out loud, but they're like, I'm defending typos. Fuck you. Like they're, <laughs> they're redirecting their rage to something that's a little bit more acceptable, I guess. Yeah. You I, know what, yeah. though? I don't think most Fifty Shades fans would be defenders of the Oxford comma, though. I mean, maybe I, I don't have anything to prove that. <laughs> oh, no, I disagree. But I'm just the, guessing. The, the story first blew up among um uh blew up like was being passed around by um like upper middle class white 
mothers in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. That's what, you know, these were, these are well-educated women um, yeah. who might live maybe just a little bit more of a repressive life than they chose to. But, for, you know, for That's me. They were calling it on mommy porn. Mommy porn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the idea that this is like a new thing um, is just, you know, it's silly. I remember being in high school when Anne Rice was writing her erotic novels. Oh, yes. I remember the, reading the Sleeping the Beauty, Beauty series. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And yeah. Exit to Eden and all that stuff. And like by the time I was in high school, I was like, I know this is my jam. I just I but I wish as someone who had been so impressionable that I wasn't reading so many consent violations. I didn't know how to find books that were fiction and had any sort of healthy relationships like I actually gave up I, I was a huge romance reader as a teenager and I gave it up in my 20s because I just could no longer stand watching women get like verbally and sexually abused by men and it took me finding another author and only reading the stuff that she suggested um to get back into even slightly get back into romance. And I think that's one of the reasons why I tend to stay towards YA romance um, is because consent is something that they pay attention to in that much, much more than, you know, this idea that, Oh, we're writing fantasies. We're, we're fulfilling people's fantasies. So it doesn't matter if, if someone gets like thrown to the floor or slapped or, in anger or, you know, anything like that. And it's just, that's all just too upsetting for me now. Yeah. And I think, you know, you were talking about how the person had come up and said, I've never seen myself represented. And then how that dungeon scene was just so eye opening to people. And I think we take for granted, you know, as people who we have access to sex positivity, and those sorts of environments where to us, that's normal, that's our our day to day. And as educators, sure, we teach about it, you know, oh, this is this is what you should do. You know, this is what consent looks like this is a but people don't see it in practice. Like until you actually see it modeled out in the world, the way it's supposed to operate, people think like, oh, consent is so hokey. That breaks the mood. And But then when they actually see it in action, like, oh, yeah. oh that's how you do. Oh, that doesn't seem awkward at all. That's not what I imagine. And that's what you're bringing to people. Yeah, um, and I, I always joke around about that, uh, that Spike Lee show. Um, she's got to have it. Where yeah. um, this character and like in the opening trailer, there uh, she talks about how she's uh, pansexual, sex positive, and polyamorous. But like none of those, none of those words are words that Spike Lee understands. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like those, like those three identities were not things that the character had really going for her in the actual narrative of the of the of the show. But like. I joke around all the time saying that Spike Lee, who shot this thing in Brooklyn, could have sent an Uber for Dirty Lola and had Dirty Lola right? come over and correct these things, you know? Yeah. And like I don't have that I don't have that excuse. I can't say, well, I don't know these identities that I'm putting in my book. I'm you know, I'm unaware of them. I don't know what they mean. I don't spend a lot of time around them. I I, I can't do that, and neither can Elena. So we had to make sure that we got some of that stuff right. Um, Allie mentioned earlier that she talked to her kid, who's non-binary, about mm-hmm. one of the characters in Operator. And that was like a real conversation that we had to have because in Operator, there's a non-binary character. And 
we had to decide, like, do we want to put in any idea about whether this character was assigned male or assigned female at birth? Like, is that important to the character? And, like, at some point we decided that it isn't important to the character. We, uh, we're going to leave that out. But at that point, like, I had already written something that was sort of a giveaway, like mm-hmm. this, this blink and you miss it reference. And we talked to, we talked to Allie's kid and it was like, all right, well, and like they, they said that we should keep that detail in because as important it is, as, as unimportant it is, is whether or not this character is assigned male or female at birth, that one detail was also important for visibility. Mm. So like we kept, we kept the detail in again, it's blink and you miss it. And I've had, I've had people like misgender the character to me, you know, like, None of the the character never gets misgendered in the book. It's they them pronouns throughout, and like and they and everyone gets that right. But I've had people come up to me and be like, "Oh my god, I love that character. He's fantastic." And I'm like, "But where did you get he from?" Yeah, like, we didn't. Yeah. we didn't give you that. You know, or I've oh, had wow. people say like she she was a great character. She was my favorite character. And it's like, where did you get this information from? Yeah. So you both just were granted an effing foundation grant for your next two books, which is awesome. Congratulations! Yeah, congrats. Can you tell us a little bit more? What is the effing foundation? What is the grant? How will it help you? What are we looking forward to in these next two books? Like, give us the whole deal. So the effing foundation for sex positivity um, awards a certain number of grantees every year to do different projects uh, across all sorts of media. So we were so lucky and feel so blessed to receive this grant because we were told how many um, people were in the, or how many projects were in the running. And just to know that we made it out of all of those projects and we're in such good company. Um, Mm -hmm. If you follow the Effing Foundation, they have been posting every day about the people who have, um, who are receiving grants next year. And there are some really fantastic projects, people just raising up amazing um, stories and voices and and doing things that, like, I would never have even thought of, but are going to be so amazing. And uh, I'm just, I'm like, I'm, I'm like almost more excited about everybody else's project than ours, <laughs> which I should not be. I should not be at all. But I'm going to let Kevin talk about that because... Because I'll just keep going on about like all the other people I've been learning about over the past couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, so the Effing Foundation uh, granted us, uh, uh, gave us this grant, and we're going to use it to write a couple of nonfiction books. Um, like we're still committed to doing more of the For Hire series. I actually spent this week r- working on the third book in the For Hire series. Uh, but like we're putting together two nonfiction books. And the first one is based on a feature from my poly role models blog called mm-hmm. uh, cautionary polyamory, uh, teachable <laughs> moments in non-monogamous relationships. And the basis of that is people make mistakes and like people screw up their, their monogamous relationships all the time. And very rarely do they say like, Oh my God, this monogamy thing maybe isn't working out for me. Maybe I shouldn't be monogamous, but people do that with polyamory all the time. They make one or two right. mistakes and they decide to never try it again. So this book is going to be an, um, a breakdown of a lot of frequent mistakes, uh, common mistakes 
and stories, people telling stories of these common mistakes and how they bounced back from them. Like, that's really important to me. Like, not just saying, like, hey, you can screw up, but, like, how do you bounce back from that screw up? What do you take away from it? What do you learn? How are you not making that same mistake again going forward and um, telling that story? Because we all have we all have our screw ups. We we all have our, our broken hearts and at times we've had our hearts broken. But what are we taking away from it? What are we learning from it? And how are we moving forward to be, like, successfully polyamorous despite that? Yeah, that's fucking brilliant. It's like, show me a poly person that hasn't made a major fuck up. Like, well, you can't find one. Right, because we don't Why have... Why are you staring at me while you're saying that? <laughs> 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 but we don't you have are a pretty guidebook. perfect, sweetheart. You know, we don't have a guidebook. Um, you know, we've got some books out there, and they're all geared towards the most positive experience you can have. And that's really important. But to be authentic, we also have to talk about the bad stuff. And for Kev to have put this out there and to put this spin on it where it's like, you know what? You can't just tell me your horror stories. We're not here to like, you know, be titillated or whatever. You know, we're here to figure out what have we learned? What are we going to do better? What's going to change next time? And I just I I loved that so much. And um, actually, Kev and I met at a discussion group and I told a story there and he said that would be perfect for cautionary poly do you mind submitting it and so i did and then i told another story and he's like you should submit that one too (laughs) and then he was like i really love that this perspective you're bringing to it um do you mind turning um turning this into a workshop with me and so that's a thing we've been doing for i guess this is going to be three years next year yeah um and we're really excited that we're still doing it and we've been talking about turning it into a book for a while but we got so wrapped up in uh an operator and yeah Yeah. for hire just sort of took over and so this this grant affords us the opportunity i'm not even sure opportunity is the right word it locks us in to doing a thing (laughs) that we've been talking about doing for about two years now that we have put off to do other things that are just as important to us but this way we have to get it done so um, cool. And the the other book uh and I'm going to I'm going to spiral off because tangents are my thing. Mm-hmm. Um so last year, the week before Love's Not Colorblind came out, I was in Tucson, uh, Arizona for the first time. And I was there because I was uh I was attending a wedding. And to like expand on that, I had been in a long distance relationship with with a, a person in Tucson for like going on three years. We had never been in the same room together, but we got to know each other online. We 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 formed sort of an emotional bond online. And I they were just never on the East Coast and I was never in the Southeast. And then they were like, well, and then like I introduced them to somebody else who was in Tucson, a woman who lived in Tucson. I'm like, hey, you two are both in the same city. You might get along. You should try to meet. And I wasn't the only one of their friends who was trying to make that connection. But like, uh, eventually, they go out on a not date. By the end of their not date, it became a date. Um, they fell in love and decided to get married. And I flew out to Tucson to give away uh, to give away um, to give away one of the brides because I guess they 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 just weren't jiving with their family so well. And I realized that like. I'm flying I'm flying across country to give away a bride at a wedding. They've made time for us to like fool around since we've never been in a room together, you know? Right. And I'm like, this is this is a happy story that could only exist in a polyamorous context. And 
So I'm so I we, that's what what we're trying to do for the second book, where we want to collect stories, feel good stories that can only exist in a polyamorous context because there's oh. got to be so many of those, you know. Oh, it's like kit, chicken soup for the polyamorous soul. Wow. <laughs> You're like, no, shut up. No, no. Like, I, I like that. I, w- I, wish I, I wish I had thought of it. So I have two last questions before we sign off. Uh, first one is a two-parter. Uh, is there any plans on making the For Hire series either an audiobook or a graphic novel? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we actually... Um, we have been trying to turn Operator into an audiobook f- since we started the crowdfund for it. Um, we had it as a perk. We had someone who was interested in doing it, and unfortunately, uh, she had a um, a family commitment and she couldn't do it. So then we ended up uh, going through a couple more people and finally are working with someone right now who is almost done. So Operator Yay. should be oh, done awesome. soon. And then audition. Um, we are putting a call out soon. Not quite yet, I think, uh, but very, very soon uh, for someone to to do our main character. I believe that we're going to. We already have the other main character cast, but um, again, like contracts need to be signed and things like that. So it's absolutely on the way and we apologize for the delay. Um, yeah, it's real hard to, to do this sort of thing when you've never done it before. Yeah. 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 Especially like, um, like love's not colorblind came out as by way of thorn tree press. There was only so much I had to do to get that book in the stores that for higher books, we are self publishing. We are, we, like we are the motion, you know, we are, we are the, the wheels. We are the gears. Um, I said that three times and none of those words made sense. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just me and it's just me and Alana, and we're so like any like things like audiobooks, things we've never done before. It's really difficult to like put all that stuff together. We're doing it step by step, um, and it's it's been a great it's been a great ride. But then there end up being like you know delays. Right. Right. But it's coming, so that's oh good. no, it's, it's a absolutely lot of work. coming. It's, that's a lot of work. It's not just that. It's like you know, when you are working with someone like Kev lives about what twenty minutes away from me or twenty five yeah. minutes away from me or something like that. About that. So if we need to be in the same room, we can get in the same room, right? If we're having like one of those like text fights, like we do, all we <laughs> have to do is be in the same room, and we don't we're not mad at each other anymore because we can hear tone we can you know do whatever and and we can make it happen and we can make it work um it's so hard to work with someone from afar who is recording yeah so it's like oh you know what uh how do you say this name how do you do this thing what kind of inflection do you want in this should the person sound sadder should they sound happier um you know there's there's two ways to record audiobooks right one is like you're reading the story and the other is like the story is being played out for you by one person. Right. And that's a really difficult task. And there are lots of people out there who are really, really good at it. And people who are starting out like us can't really afford those people. So we're, we're also looking for people who, um, who are starting out as well and want to learn with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's a look, that's a, that's a process. That's a learning curve. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, I, so la- last question yep. real quick. Uh, 
are any of the characters in the For Hire series based on people that I might know in real life? Um, hmm. Yes, because people have some of the some of the crowdfunding perks have been to be in the books. Oh, that's cool. cool. And so sometimes it's just someone's name, right? Like you pay to get your name in there. That person's not going to be you. Um, right, right. But we definitely <laughs> one of our our dear friends. Um, is is in the first book and is also in the second book and will probably somehow turn up in the fourth book and maybe like you know the fifth book and the sixth book and so on and so forth because we just we just love this person so much Agreed. yeah and and you know don't get me wrong like that it started because they paid for the perk right they were like oh i want i want to i want to be in the book or you know whatever and then all of a sudden we're at the after party for the book <laughs> for the book release for audition and I'm like wait a second wait a second that character that has your name is a variant so what's your power and they're like shouldn't you know that and I'm like I, I don't know Kev should we know that <laughs> and so we ended up <laughs> ended up having like sort of a game changer conversation about like where this character might go and you know we're doing it in concert with the person who inspired the character that's awesome. That's really oh, fucking that is cool. Amazing. Nice. Also, like I've borrowed a couple of names here or there. Like uh, one of the main characters from Audition has the last name of, has Dirty Lola's last name. That's the, that's what made me ask this question because I wanted to know if Camille was Lola. Oh and, God, no, no, no. <laughs> Lola, Lola is, yeah. is so so much nicer <laughs> yeah. than Camille. <laughs> Lola's amazing. Lola is someone that you want to spend time with. Camille is someone that you want to get out of the room with as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Double M's first name, Marcella. I got that. Uh, that's Dr. Liz Powell's middle name. So, like, I, I, I oh. borrowed that as well. But, that's cool. But nice. like, yeah. But there's, but those are basically the only similarities. That that's all. Okay. That's all Kev's doing. I'm like, oh, we need to pick a name for someone. Let me like look at four thousand baby books and find out what all these names mean and try to find like layers and layers. And he's just like, yeah, I'm gonna name it after my friend over there. That that person's gonna be named <laughs> after after that buddy of mine. And I'm just like, I swear to God, one day someone's gonna be like, Kev. I would never say that, and and he's gonna lose a friend over this, <laughs> and I'm gonna be like, I told you so. We should have just named them like Jane Smith, and you know, whatever, whatever. Oh I've got lots That's of hilarious. friends. I can lose a couple. Look, I'm, <laughs> oh my god. So tell us where people can follow you. So when this big friend blow up happens, we can get the tea on Twitter or any kind of social media. Where do we need to go to find out more? All right. Well, I'm um, I'm. Poly role models on everything still. I'm poly role models on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and Alana is Hello Librarian on Twitter, Polyamorous Librarian on Instagram, uh, Polyamorous Library on Pilot, Polyamorous Librarian on Facebook. And the books for hire, you can get them uh, on Amazon as a paperback, and the ebooks are available everywhere. Um, I would suggest if you're just going straight for the ebook, get them from Smashwords. Like it's the easiest place. It's got the most uh, different types of ebooks available, and it actually pays us the most amount of money. So um, Smashwords for your ebooks, Amazon for your paperbacks. 
Awesome. Awesome. Very, very cool. And as always, American fuckers, all of those links that Kev just mentioned, in addition to some of the other things we talked about, like the effing foundation, and I'll go through and get all the other things we talked about, all of those links will be in the show notes for this episode at americansexpodcast.com. And this has been fucking amazing. Thank, thank you, you guys. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag PsyChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.